three, three two, two, one, one, go, go. Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson, and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, I've just got done attending Apple's WWDC keynote and the sort of aftermath and the hands-on area and so on. And we're going to make that the major focus of this episode, which is effectively our question of the week episode for the week, our deep dive episode. We'll just be talking through all the announcements that Apple made at WWDC this morning. Uh, so that's what we've uh, interestingly I think our very first episode of the podcast was a preview of WWDC two years ago uh, so we've kind of come up on the two-year anniversary roughly of the the first episode that we did so this is the third time around that we're spending a, an episode digesting announcements from WWDC um, there was a lot to talk about the keynote ran over two hours it doesn't often do that did it a couple of years ago I uh, did it again today and there's a lot to talk about and so we're going to try to be judicious in our use of time and covering everything that was announced. We're going to spend just about five minutes on the stuff um, that Apple ran through very quickly at the beginning, the sort of intro, the tvOS and watchOS parts, and then we're going to spend the bulk of the time on the Mac, uh, the iOS announcements including iPad, and then the uh, HomePod device. Um, so that's what we'll spend the bulk of the time on. But we did just want to run through the first few minutes as well. Um, just talk about some of the stuff Apple didn't spend as much time on and, and perhaps what that signifies. Uh, fascinating event overall. You know, most hardware-centric keynote Apple's had for years now. I haven't talked about hardware at all for several years during this keynote, and now you had three big sort of hardware product lines uh, mentioned. Uh, but it really felt like Apple sort of doubled down on the strategy from last year where they just kind of hit the highlights of a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of detail, and I've been kind of on the go, so I haven't had a lot of time to look at this, but Aaron's been looking at some of it online there's a lot of detail in the press releases and so on that wasn't even mentioned on stage so a lot of additional detail that uh, has come out that way and, and I think that's going to be the theme going forward Apple has so much to cover now in these keynotes that it is just going to hit the highlights and a lot of detail will come out later well let's go on to the first few minutes here um, the event kicked off with an intro video uh, which I think probably summarizes the sort of apocalypse which was sort of the scenario where some new Apple employee accidentally unplugs the App Store basically and everything goes horribly wrong in the world because people can't use their apps anymore. Aaron, what, what did you think of that video? I loved it. It was really funny and it was a really creative way to compliment developers and all the work they do. There was only one tiny sort of cringeworthy aspect of it, which is that Apple has this narrative, right, this reputation about their failures in cloud services mm. and the idea that, you know, some really incompetent first day employee could just unplug the App Store is, you know, I mean, it feeds into this idea a little bit that Apple doesn't do this as well as other people. But but I also like that it's very self-effacing and so it mm -hmm. doesn't really matter too much. I'm yeah. sure there are people who tease Apple for that, um, mm -hmm. but uh, but I just the, it it was really creative and huge production values. Yes. I mean that was yeah. that like had to be really expensive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like that they had that tanker explosion that was amazing. Yes. <laughs> so um, you know I hope they post it online. Mm. I, I would expect they would, but who knows? Yeah. It was really yeah. it was really funny though, really creative. Yeah, no, it was funny. I, I had the, somewhat the same reaction. I was sort of, is this really the sense that you want to give people? And Tim Cook was very careful to say, obviously, that couldn't really happen, and obviously it couldn't. But this idea that because somebody unplugged a server somewhere, all the apps not just stop working, but just disappear from your phone. That's right. kind of the gist. Yeah. And it was like, is that really the <laughs> impression you want to leave people with? But but it was a great way to highlight the contribution developers make, as you say. Um, the, the other first few minutes covered TVOS, and that literally got one minute. Uh, and really, the only major announcement there was... 
that Amazon is coming. Um, but there was a promise that there's lots more to come later this year. And Aaron, what's your prediction about that? Yeah, I I totally think that was Apple essentially admitting that there's new uh, Apple TV hardware coming later this year. I'm not sure what they would be. High- I mean, maybe they're highlighting a tvOS update later, but mm-hmm. clearly there's not a whole lot developer oriented. Right. And so um, otherwise they would have talked about stuff now if there were new developer tools or resources for tvOS. And so mm-hmm. I think, I, I think yeah, I think new hardware is coming partly because they made a big deal out of HEVC throughout the whole keynote, which mm-hmm. is what really drives efficient 4K um, content and HDR video content. Right. And I think they're essentially setting themselves up to do an Apple TV that drives that can drive a 4K television. So, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows what else is going to come? Um, you know, they've done Apple TV or sorry, TVOS stuff before with pretty short notice for developers. Right. Um, and so, in fact, when they first announced it, it had very little developer lead time the way that mm. they've done in the past. And so, maybe there's stuff coming down the pipe that way. But clearly, they don't see the Apple TV is a major developer platform. They see it as more of, um, you know, uh, where they're driving the majority of the content themselves. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I think, I think Apple TV, new hardware, mm-hmm. I'd give it a 75% likelihood now at this point because of that. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me as well. And, and, you know, clearly whatever they may be changing, may be more user facing than, than developer facing. So, you know, there right. may be changes, the interface or whatever, you know, improvements to the way the TV app works, for example, and obviously Amazon being part of it will be an element of that. Uh, but it could well yeah. be that there's nothing much that developers need to do, um, you know, in order for that stuff to just work for users. So that could be part of it too. Um, WatchOS was another part that got fairly short shrift. It was it got it got a bit more. It got sort of 10, 15 minutes of time, but uh, not a ton of news there. The main news for me was the Siri watch face, and that addresses a, a frustration that I've had a little bit, which is, um, you know, you, you kind of set your watch up for what you use most frequently, but what you want to use right now is actually different at different times of day. And so, you know, I've wished that I could swap, you know, have different, slightly different modes for different times of day. And you can manually change the face, of course, but it'd be nice if it just kind of knew that, you know, in the evening, I don't really care so much about the workout app because I don't tend to work out in the evenings. I just want to know how much battery I have left or something else, uh, just picking something at random. Um, and so the Siri face seems to try to address that. It does it in an interesting way, rather than sort of use the complication setup of having lots of little tiny things that give you some sense of how things are going. It's more sort of notification based, which means you kind of have to scroll through it to get the real value out of it. And I, I'm curious to try that and see whether that ends up being kind of annoying to have to scroll through stuff rather than just glancing at it. Um, but I think the concept's a good one, and it helped to highlight sort of what was one of the themes from today, which was Siri becoming more proactive. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how well Siri does that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. Because because the notifications that you scroll through take so much of the screen real estate. Um, there may be three things you want at once, and you're only seeing two at a time. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and glanceability so has been a big part of the value proposition of that watch face. So that goes away a little bit under yeah, that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I think mm-hmm. the whole Siri aware or Siri driven watch face concept is probably going to get even more refined as time goes on so oh, yeah. that it can be a little more information dense like you were saying. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. One one other thing you picked up on um, was the continuous glucose monitor reference. It was very brief, but kind of related yeah. to something that Tim Cook had been talking about recently. So do you want to talk about that a bit too? Yeah, I think it explains what was really happening with, with Tim Cook all year wearing a CGM as he was going, you know, as he's going around. Um, Kevin Lynch essentially announced that the new watch is going to support core Bluetooth, which means that the watch can talk to certain types of Bluetooth devices directly rather than having to do it through the phone. Um, and continuous glucose monitors are one of those things that use core Bluetooth. And, and so rather than your CGM having to talk to your phone first and then in turn, talk, which then in turn talks to your watch, mm-hmm. now your watch talks directly to your CGM, which I, I think just sort of keeps it more, um, more active and up to date. And, right. uh, and so, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's where all of this, like Tim Cook, you know, mm-hmm. blood gl- glucose monitoring stuff came from all year. Right. It, it, you know, because it seems like a weird thing to go out of the way to highlight this compatibility, even especially in such a tight keynote. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, if they have something bigger down the road, say September with a watch that mm-hmm. somehow magically tracks your blood gl- glucose level through your skin. Right. So. Yeah, no, and it opens the door for, for people that make these kinds of devices to start integrating directly with the Apple Watch. So, you know, this is a, just a capability today and obviously gave the example right. of the CGM. But, you know, in time, you could see lots of companies building stuff explicitly to pair with an Apple Watch and doing interesting things with that with other sensors, which means Apple Watch itself doesn't need to add a bunch of additional sensors. It can just integrate better with other stuff, which kind of goes along with what they're doing with the fitness equipment as well, where your watch can pair yeah. with you know, a treadmill or something. And that's a frustration I've long had where... Um, I mean, you get a little of it through the heart rate monitor, so it can kind of tell how intensively you're working out. If you're, say, walking on an incline, which is something that I've I've always done a lot of to kind of burn some more calories, make a workout more intensive. Um, but you know, in practical terms, every gym you go to is going to have to upgrade all its equipment for that to work. So this is very much a long-term play. It sounds like they've got a lot of companies on board with it. But how often does your local gym swap out its exercise equipment? Probably right. not all but that it, often. But you know. Treadmills are one thing, but then you have rowing machines and ellipticals mm-hmm. and all these other um, devices that people use or uh, equipment that people use to work out. And I think that's where the the talking part is going to be really convenient for people. Yeah, yeah. As as it rolls out, I think it's going to be very helpful. Right. It's just going to take years probably for it to be really useful. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's move on to what I would consider kind of the bulk of the announcements today. Starting with the Mac, and then we'll move on to iOS and iPad, and then ultimately the HomePod device as well. Uh, on the Mac side, started off with Mac OS updates, and th- this really feels to me like a talk release in the sort of standard TikTok yeah. formulation. Uh, the naming sort of reflects that, sort of like Mountain Lion was a sort of refinement of Lion uh, when they were still naming these things after big cats rather than parts of California. Um, so yeah, the fact that it's called High Sierra is just kind of reinforces that, and they talked about perfecting Sierra. Um, and I think you, the way you were framing this, Aaron, was about fixing annoyances. What did you mean by that? Well, I don't know. There are little things about using Mac OS that are annoying um, that they that they're fixing. I, for example, when they announced the the update to messages so that it syncs across platforms, so you, you know your messages sync from your Mac to your iPhone. Mm-hmm. I thought that that always was the case, and it just happened poorly. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, so I was I was I was like, oh, okay. I guess maybe that's how it's supposed to work. And and. Um, Hmm. And, and I, I'm glad that they did. They obviously they did it in a way that it still preserves end-to-end encryption and all that kind of stuff, which is awesome. 
um, because it maintains the privacy benefit of that. But yeah, that was that was one of the things you know on the you mentioned in the in the in the lead to this that um, there were other things that um, uh, didn't get a mention on stage, you know, but that you find on Apple's web pages about Mac OS and iOS 11. Another thing, for example, is that uh, uh, iCloud storage plans are now shareable across families in uh, family sharing accounts. That's a really big deal. Um, it's something people have complained about for a while. In fact, um, I'm kind of surprised it didn't get a mention, a mention on stage because it's been a, a, an annoyance and a pain point for people. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been little stuff like that. I, obviously, the bigger deal, the under-the-hood stuff, is tied mostly to um, sort of the, the core technologies that Federighi talked about, specifically the file system, um, the new video codec, and then the metal slash VR stuff, which um, I think is going gonna, is gonna to be a really big deal over time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I do think that that kind of stuff is going to be very important. I think that the the VR stuff and basically um, Mac's been shut out of the VR world. You know, it's been a PC world right. essentially, and and so this now. And importantly, though, for now, the focus is on people creating VR content on the Mac, not necessarily on, on consuming it or, or playing VR games or whatever using your Mac, although that will come, I think. But it's an interesting distinction. We'll talk about AR later on. But I think you know Apple's approach to VR and AR are quite different. And Tim Cook's always made clear that he feels AR is more compelling than VR in the short term. And so it's AR that's getting kind of first-class status on Apple's biggest platform, which is you know iOS, the iPhone, and iPad. Uh, VR is mostly about creating the content today, and so Final Cut's getting capabilities for spherical video, for example. Um, you know, you're getting interfaces and so on to use to to create VR content and manipulate it and so on on the Mac. Uh, but that's the main focus for now, not um, you know, not not people playing VR games necessarily. That will come, as I say, in time, and I think you'll get that integration. But it's interesting, subtle but important difference in in the emphasis of VR and AR announcements today. Yeah, and I don't think that was just because this is a developers conference. Like I think this no. is because Apple is essentially, you know, planting its flag and saying, "Hey, people have been using Macs for creative content for years and years and years. We want to make sure that they can do it for VR content as well." Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, another big thing on the on the Mac OS side was the Apple File System coming to and becoming the default now on uh, in Mac OS. And this is a transition that Apple's gone through over the past few months with iOS and very seamlessly, actually, with very few issues, despite the fact this is sort of a massive thing to change the underlying file system in an operating system on hundreds of millions of devices. And they, they, they've accomplished that remarkably seamlessly on the iPhone, and they're now bringing it to the Mac as well. And so that will give them consistency, obviously, across these platforms, but it would also provide a lot of benefits that they talked about in terms of uh, reduced file sizes and in terms of compression and in terms of uh, duplicating and copying files and so on. It seems like that will all go much faster and be more efficient going forwards. And and this part of this sort of broader story about these new formats. I mean, you mentioned HEVC earlier, um, but, uh, you know, there's a number of changes that they're making to make storage more efficient and uh, effective. And so this kind of fits with that broader story too. Yeah, one thing that's interesting about uh, Apple File System is it's 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 got encryption baked in at at the very fundamental level. Mm. You know, back when they turned on File Vault and and first started doing File Vault, it was it was it caused quite a bit of overhead in the performance of your Mac, and 
and now this is just sort of encryption is just baked in. It's going to be an interesting problem. And I think it just sort of shows that the debate that was happening mostly last year, right, about encrypted information being protected from government search, the, the, the train of encryption is not only since left the station, but it is speeding up. And it's just going to be the future of the world that, that you know, all this stuff is going to be naturally encrypted and, and harder to, to look at if you don't have the encryption keys you need to view it. Yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, that's I, I think I, I'm, I'm a little curious about how well this will go. I wish I knew more about file systems. iOS is a very tightly controlled platform where apps don't have access to a lot of the same sort of core level functions as they do on the Mac. And I'm curious if there are going to be certain key apps or important apps that are going to have a rougher go with the update to Apple file system versus HFS. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that'll be interesting to watch. But yeah, certainly this whole Metal 2 and a bunch of the graphic stuff that's in there and, and the role of the GPU, especially. I mean, this is a broader trend in the industry. It's why NVIDIA has done so well, for example, over the last little while. You know, GPUs being used for machine learning and so on. That was sort of a theme as well. And, you know, this is, is it now the third year straight? I think the machine learning has had a somewhat increased presence um, at WWDC, you know, I mean, Apple tends not yeah. to talk about underlying technologies like that that much. But I think over the last couple of years, they've really responded to the fact that people are getting this perception that Apple somehow doesn't care about AI and machine learning or doesn't get it or isn't very good at it. And so they have made these increasing references to it. And there were certainly a handful of references to AI and machine learning. There were a couple of minutes in the middle of the keynote about AI specifically. Um, but there's a lot of stuff um, that was mentioned today around that. And, and certainly the idea that the graphics and the GPU uh, can be used for some of that um, was a theme, and and we'll talk about ML Core, that Core ML rather later on. But uh, you know that that was definitely a theme during the conference, during the keynote, in a way that it hasn't been before. It'll be fascinating to watch more details on that spill out as the week goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's move on to talking about the Mac hardware because that was the sort of somewhat expected, but also unexpected in the case of the iMac uh, part of today's announcements. I mean, th there was this. Slightly unusual situation where Apple brought out new MacBook Pros in the fall of last year, and one of the criticisms at the time was that they were sort of underpowered from the memory perspective, and that was a reflection of the fact that they'd gone with, uh, I guess, the Silver Lake processors rather than the more current generation Kaby Lake processors because they couldn't support some of what Apple wanted to do with them. And they seem to have decided to bring those MacBook Pros out late last year because everything else was ready, and they felt the need to uh, try to get the Mac growing again um, at the end of last year. And that was very successful, and they seem to have sold well. And we've talked about how the ASPs for the Mac line have gone up, which seems to be a reflection that those those MacBooks have sold well. Um, but you know, there was this criticism that, that they maxed out at too low a level from a memory perspective, and in various other ways were underpowered for doing really heavy-duty work. And so. On the MacBook Pro side, there was a sort of fairly predictable set of updates using KB Lake processors now from Intel um, and, you know, more powerful machines now with better uh, processors, um, faster speeds, more storage and, and support for um, uh, external GPUs and various other things as well. So a whole bunch of stuff there. But then there was also this iMac uh, set of updates, which we weren't expecting. There really weren't that many reports about that ahead of time. And then this preview of an iMac Pro coming in the fall. Um, so, and they kind of trailed that a little bit when they made the sort of Mac Pro announcement earlier in the year. But uh, a whole set of uh, updates to the Mac line. And Aaron, what was sort of your big takeaway from all of that? Um, I was a little surprised. I, I was. <clears throat> I was surprised that the rumor sites didn't pick up on the new iMac, but I wasn't surprised that there was an iMac update. It was long overdue. Yeah. 
What I was surprised by is that the iMac didn't get a more sort of top to bottom redesign. As I've been thinking about it since the keynote today, I think I've just come to the conclusion that, you know, the the design language of the iMac is so refined over such a long period of time. I'm not sure what major re redesign they would do. I think the only external thing that really still stands out is the big chin that runs across the bottom and they mm -hmm. don't seem to feel any urgency to get rid of that. And yeah. so, um, I'm also surprised that they were as generous as they were with the port situation in the back of the iMac. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it still has an ethernet port, not just the pro, but the regular iMac has an ethernet port. It still has four USB a connectors, uh, um, uh, <clears throat> it still has an SD card slot. I mean, you know, with, with how stingy they were with ports and the MacBook Pros, um, just giving the four USB-C connectors, I'm surprised that they were, that they just sort of figured, yeah, let's keep these all in. <laughs> right? It right. Doesn't, seem, doesn't seem like the way they normally do things, especially as they're kind of pushing USB-C as the connectors of the future as far as Mac goes. So, um I don't know. I, I mean, uh, I thought the price thing was surprising, bringing price down. I mean, a yeah. 4K iMac at twelve ninety nine is really cheap, mm -hmm. and uh, and I and I thought that was that's going to be something that I expect a lot of people that are still buying Macs are gonna are gonna snap up. Yeah, yeah, no, that was an interesting one for sure. Um, yeah, I, I felt just in general, it's it's interesting because I have a lot of family members who work in the creative industry and so you know last fall when apple brought out the new macbook pros and the complaints about that and the lack of a new mac pro and so on i talked to a bunch of them just to see kind of what do they use in their workplaces what do the other creatives uh, they mostly work in film and advertising so they're mostly video editing people but uh talk to them about what they use and, and almost to a man they all use uh, iMacs and not Mac yeah. Pros. Um, you know that really seems to be the device that's used most commonly. And it was interesting to hear. And I, I think it, uh, it was probably Phil Schiller on stage saying that the uh, the iMac is actually the most used Pro desktop. Um, you know, the most popular one, not the Mac Pro. Um, and, that, and that's partly the fact that it's more mainstream, and the Mac Pro is more limited to the people who are doing really heavy duty stuff. But it's also the fact that you know, for the vast majority of creatives and, and professional users in general. You know, the iMac is perfectly fine. It, it can be specced up quite high already. And then with these upgrades that were made today and then the announcement of the iMac Pro coming later this year, it really feels like Apple is saying, hey, you know, the iMac can handle pretty much anything you want to throw at it creatively. You know, it can uh, you know, max out on all these different specs and so on. And, and you know, all the teraflops and other terminology that was used today, which is kind of hard to relate to as an ordinary user. But you know, basically making the point that, you know, these truly are pro machines that, that the vast majority of professional users, including people working on fairly high end graphic intensive tasks can now use an iMac to do it. And there's really very little left for the Mac Pro to do uniquely well, um, especially once you factor in kind of external peripherals and so on that can now cover more uh, areas and so on as well. So, um, so I felt that was a big message coming out of this was, look, between the upgrades upgrades to the MacBook Pro line and then the iMac line, you know these computers between them can handle pretty much everything you've always wanted the Mac Pro to do in the past. And so, it does raise a question about where does the Mac Pro go? You know, what does it still do uniquely well? Um, and you know, which direction do they then push that in as they rethink that device? Um, well, I, but it I, also I suggests that the iMac is going to fill very much of the role that the Mac Pro has in the past. 
I think there's a legitimate question as to whether or not this is the answer to the Mac Pro that they mm-hmm. that Phil Schiller promised earlier this year. Yeah, and I don't think there's clarity on that yet. No, there's not. And that's the thing. I think everybody's assuming that there's still going to be a Mac Pro, and I don't think we can take that for granted. The The iMac Pro may be the answer that Apple promised a couple months ago. Mm. And, uh, and because it's got so much ex- extensibility through, through Thunderbolt, um, it's not clear why people need a standalone Mac Pro anymore. And I wonder, and it's still a legit question as to whether or not the iMac Pro is the answer here. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> if it is, I, even it, if it's not, I should say, but Apple comes out with a Mac with a separate Mac Pro tower later, I think the iMac Pro is going to sell an order of magnitude more units than whatever Mac Pro tower they come up with. Absolutely. Because there are going to be plenty of developers that are, you know, or other professionals that are really happy with the iMac Pro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's the key takeaway, really. Yeah. yeah. Anything else on the Mac side, on the Mac OS or Mac hardware that we haven't talked about yet? Yes, I'm sad that they didn't do a magic keyboard with the touch bar. <laughs> but I really hope you can buy that space gray... Uh, keyboard that's coming mm. with the iMac Pro. I really hope you can buy that separately because reading on the website, it's it's uh, it's actually a Bluetooth one, mm. and they haven't done a Bluetooth extended keyboard for a long time. Right. And so, and the Space Gray is really cool looking with the black yeah. keys. So I yeah. hope you can buy that separately. I don't know if you'll be able to or not, but yeah, I will probably get one if they do, <laughs> if they don't if they don't do the the Touch Bar on the on their magic keyboards, which I'm sad about because I really like it on my mm. MacBook Pro. Yeah. I, you know, uh, that's the one I'll get if I right. can. I'm not right. going to buy an iMac Pro just to get the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, that would be a bit extreme. Yeah, no, it, it was a funny one. I mean, I took some pictures of it at the event. And, and by the way, I've been posting pictures of videos all day on, on Twitter. So you may want to go check those out if you haven't seen them already. But um, I took some pictures of it. But it really struck me that it's a, it's gonna, it's a somewhat... Um, marginal taste i mean i don't know that everybody's going to want this really dark computer sitting on their desk it's one thing to have you know a black trash can like device sitting under the desk or even on the desk if it's small but the whole monitor and everything else to be that dark i think is going to be um i don't think it's going to be for everybody and so i I wonder to what extent what we saw announced today is an option where there's still going to be sort of a silver option as well which i think a lot of people will still prefer to go with or whether it's going to be the only option i think it's the only option that's a mistake frankly i think uh you know, there can be a lot of people, you know, think about the classic sort of creative or designery office, very light, airy sort of places a lot of the time. And a really dark computer is going to feel somewhat out of place in that environment. And so I do wonder to what extent they're going to give people options uh, for colors. I, I suspect they will and certainly they should uh, when it comes to that, just a minor point. Yeah, um, I, I still need a new compu- uh, keyboard because my yeah. eye key isn't working right. So <laughs> it's ironic, <laughs> right, the that, that eye, yeah. that's the key. It's the eye. <laughs> It's that's not like mean, it's in every Apple product name or anything. Right. Um, well, speaking of I, let's move on to iOS um, and uh, talk about the announcements there. There was some stuff that was sort of generic, and then there was a whole section that was specifically about the iPad. And so we'll tackle that and the new iPad hardware together in just a minute. 
Um, my overwhelming sense with iOS, aside from the iPad stuff, was this was a, a lot like the High Sierra announcements on the Mac OS side, which is they were mostly incremental. Um, there was not a ton of big leaps forward where you feel like, oh, we're well, using iOS is going to be really different after this update in a way that you usually do. You usually, I don't know, I usually feel like I, I really want to install this today because I want to get all the new extra features that I'm going to get, all the rest of it. I think there's still some cool stuff there. I think Control Center, for example, would be a lot less frustrating to use now that it's back to being a single screen rather than two screens again. And, and there's, supposedly there's a customization element in there. They didn't detail that on stage, which in the press release. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, um, but a again, um, you know, a few sort of incremental things there. Siri, in particular, only got about three minutes on stage, which kind of surprised me a little bit because I was expecting them to make a bigger deal about out of it. Um, the promises there are um, pretty big, you know, in terms of being more conversational uh, and more capable in a variety of ways. But it wasn't very specific, um, and so that's one where the proof is going to be in the pudding, I think, to a great extent. Where I have to actually try that and see how much better it is. But I also wondered to how, to what extent users will actually try anything new because they don't know. It's so hard to know what's going to be new and different. And so that's a tricky one. But yeah, it just felt like sort of little tweaks and incremental changes here and there rather than sort of dramatic stuff like we saw last year. Yeah, well, and what's strange to me about this, I, I think that was one thing everybody was expecting a lot of, if for no other reason that all their major competition made a really big deal out of these intelligent assistants and what they can do for you in, in your life and so forth. And Siri, I don't want to say Siri felt like an afterthought. It was a, it popped up sort of throughout the whole keynote, but it didn't get this sort of major attention as, hey, here's the new Siri, look at all the amazing things it can do because there was a lot of detail missing. And uh, and I was that, I think that was, for me, probably the most surprising thing, is that Siri wasn't front and center more frequently. Um, but like you said, the proof will be in the pudding. And the truth is, Apple's always kind of working on Siri in the background anyway, and making little tweaks and improvements to Siri uh, along the way. Um, I wonder if more details are just going to sort of be showing up throughout the summer as far as uh, you know what the new Siri can do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to kind of try that out. Um, again, I think, you know, just as with Mac OS, I think the Metal 2 and the VR support and so on was the big deal. I think in iOS, aside from the iPad stuff, I think AR Kit was probably the biggest, most interesting announcement. And I think, um, you know, Apple's obviously going after the part of AR that's actually going somewhere today, which is the smartphone centric side. It's obviously also the platform they control and have the biggest stake in. So that makes a ton of sense, too. Um, but you know, if you think about smartphone-centric AR today, it's really dominated by basically um, tarting up your pictures, for want of a better way of putting it. You know, it's about Agreed. lenses and filters and so on. Um, and as such, it's dominated by companies like Snapchat and Facebook, which uh, aren't so much building platforms as they are just basically giving you a variety of ways to stick stuff on your pictures, you know, virtually speaking. And so, um, you know, Apple could easily have done that and have taken that approach of kind of said, you know, our AR play is here's the new Photos app. Look at all these cool things you can do in Photos. And yet they didn't do that. And as far as we can tell, at least for today, they haven't actually released anything AR based themselves that's user facing. All they've done is said, here's AR kit, developers go have at it. And that's a very different approach. Um, and it's distinct also, as I said earlier, from what they're doing with VR. With VR, they're saying, developers, here are tools, but you're mostly going to be creating stuff for other platforms. Here they're saying, here's a bunch of tools for creating stuff for this platform specifically, and we can't wait to see what you do with it. Here are some examples, and they're giving some sample code and so on for you know, showing how you can detect planes and then stick stuff on planes, like surfaces like tables, and uh, scale it and, and work with light and shadow and so on. Um, 
and then using this sort of core ML set of tools for, for vision and natural language processing and so on, some of which can be part of that, that whole AR play as well. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's about saying here's a broad platform for doing whatever you want. So it's not just, I'm sure we will see stickers and stuff like that showing up uh, and filters and lenses and so on. And, and maybe we'll even see Snapchat and Facebook tap into those to some extent in their apps. Um, but, you know, the other side of this is games and a whole variety of other stuff that could be done that's much broader than what we've seen so far from most smartphone-based AR, which is very focused on pictures and video. Um, so I think, you know, it's a really interesting approach from Apple. I think it makes a ton of sense given where their strengths lie, and especially their ability to get developers on board and creating really interesting stuff around a new set of tools. Yeah, and I think that's actually the genius part of this on Apple's part, that they didn't really waste any time or effort doing an AR you know, oriented app with vision and all that stuff built in from the machine learning side. Because I'm not sure what they would have done that would have been all that great or ubiquitous or important. I think what's what's important here is that developers of all different kinds of apps can take advantage of this. And it's going to be somebody else who comes up with a really cool way for AR and machine learning to come together in an app um, that nobody's thought of yet. It's not going to be Apple that does that. And I think it's really smart for Apple to essentially say, this is a baked-in, convenient part of our platform for developers to call upon. And uh, and it's going to be really remarkable. I mean, this is essentially, <clears throat> and I'm probably oversimplifying the complexity of this, but the way that they're marketing it on the website, this is like they say, you know, you can, in a few lines of code, basically pull in really complex, impressive, and important machine learning to and build it into your app. And mm. so the 10-year-old the that got highlighted up from the top can essentially pull in machine learning into, in, into his app. Or the 83-year-old Japanese developer, you know, I forget right. her name, but she, you know, she... She can pull in machine learning and AR into her app, and and I mean that's that's pretty that's pretty dang amazing. Yeah. And so, yeah. I think that's where um, iOS is going to stand out is because of the way Apple has empowered its developers. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And I, I think this is a really smart way to approach the AR market, and um, it's where the market is today. It's where the action is today. It's where the capability is today. And yet we haven't seen a real platform around this yet. And so I think Apple's going to instantaneously create this platform of hundreds of millions of potential users of you know AR-based apps, which is going to trigger a ton of development, um, You know, lots of interesting use cases. Some of it will fail, obviously, and, and it always does with every new thing that is made available through these tools to developers. But you know, there's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff that comes out of this. And, and Apple's going to go from you know, all this criticism about Apple's not doing anything in AR and VR to you know, becoming a really significant player on the AR side and then enabling some interesting work on the VR side too. So you know, big change uh, in the next few months in terms of where Apple is and in AR in particular. Yeah. But yeah, the machine learning stuff, I think, is certainly not to be underestimated as well. I think, you know, we've seen, obviously, over the last few weeks from the other big developer events, you know, these several companies, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, you know, creating stuff around machine learning. And, and a lot of it's sort of broad-based stuff, and, and very little of it is specific to a platform. And I think that's the other thing that's interesting here is this isn't sort of cloud machine learning stuff that you can apply to whatever app you happen to be working on. This is on-device stuff. Um, you know, and that's something that Apple has sort of pioneered over the last couple of years and this uh, engendered a certain amount of uh, skepticism that you can really do machine learning well on a device. And yet, you know, Apple's proven that it can do that. We've seen others like Google start to do more stuff on device as well. And if we see, you know, a dedicated AI chip 
um, later this year, which is or, or next year, which has been rumoured. Um, you know, that obviously would further that even more. And so lots of interesting stuff coming there too, I think. Well, let's talk about the iPad specifically because there was both hardware announcements and um, iOS optimizations for iPad. And, you know, I, I think in a year when other than the AR stuff that we just talked about and the ML stuff, you know, the core sort of user features haven't changed that much on the iPhone, the iPad's getting masses of changes. And this this feels like... You know, we're finally seeing sort of a separate version of, of iOS. And it's always had a few exclusive features, but it really feels like iOS on the iPad is really growing into uh, a fully-fledged operating system in its own right that's distinct and, and really different from how it works on the iPhone that's now becoming more optimized, not just for the form factor, but how people want to use iOS on a device like that. Um, so we've now got this dock. We've got, um, you know, you can save spaces, essentially, the concept borrowed, obviously, from Mac OS. Uh, we kind of save configurations of apps that sit side by side so that you can go back to a workflow without having to kind of manually recreate it. You've got drag and drop now between uh, different apps and so on and a whole range of other things that are really quite sophisticated now. And um, Aaron, what did you make of all of that stuff? Well, I, you know, it was interesting. They obviously, because of the new hardware, had to spend time on how powerful the new iPads are from a hardware perspective, saying that they're more powerful than most than most laptops that people are buying these days. But that's been true of the iPad Pro for since they announced it, and of iPads generally. They've been really powerful computing devices for a long time. The way they've been limited is primarily by software. And I feel like this summer with WWDC, we are finally going to see the fulfillment of the promise that Tim Cook essentially made when he said he sees the iPad as the future of computing because it was a software failing that kept it from that and has kept it from that for so long. And now with the, all of these software improvements with with real file management that's integrated across apps, although from what I've read with the developer side, that actually has to be a developer implementation to take advantage of it. But, um, you know, with time and developers catching up with the features and the drag and drop and everything like that, you know, it took a while for developers to do the split screen thing, right? Or the slide over functionality and some apps never even got that update, but most of them have. Once developers get caught up on all this, I think this is really now finally at the stage where you can say, yeah, I could see this being the future of computing. Like I could see the, a tablet with this functionality being the primary device for the majority of people. Um, and I think it's interesting when you put it in the context of Chromebooks and all that other, and you know, and, and these essentially really inexpensive, lightweight laptops. Um, I think I think this set of software updates finally puts the iPad in the space where it says, "Yeah, you can just do this, and you can use this and be happy with it. And you don't need, you know, a, a, you don't you don't need a full laptop to accomplish what you want to accomplish." Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that to me seems like a big theme from throughout the event. It was on the one hand with the Mac line, it was, you know, these can really can be the only computers you need for high-end, really uh, compute-intensive, graphics-intensive, uh, creative work, for example. And then on the iPad side, you know, this really can now do pretty much everything you'd want it to do. And I, I think there's still apps missing. I think some of the apps that are there still aren't quite powerful enough. But I think Apple's really doing everything it possibly can to change the sort of perception and the um, performance of, of the iPad as a productivity device, kind of making clear that, you know, this really could be everything you want it to be if only you had the 
all the apps you want and, and by the way lots of the apps are there at this point but you know they the, i think the biggest task that apple still has here is to convince developers that no if you're going to create an ios app you can't just have the same thing running on iphone and then ipad with a bigger screen you have right. to really rethink it your ipad app has to be much more like a mac app or a pc app than it is like the iphone app and i think that's one of the biggest leaps that the ipad's pros and, and the ios version that runs on it still has to take in order to really take this platform to where apple wants it to be and it's kind of claiming that it already is to some extent yeah i you know i my favorite demo of the keynote was the ipad pencil demo by um and i forgot his name um the guy who demoed it with the the story about his daughter writing an app and oh, then yeah. she got an offer for 100 million and he yeah. had to sign the nda and all that mm-hmm. that was a really compelling example of how the ipad can actually be a superior primary computing platform Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the pencil as a convenient input for all that kind of stuff, not a necessary one, but a really great one. Um, the idea of instant notes where you tap and all of a sudden you're, you're taking notes right away. Um, right. you know, the scan and sign function, which is a, which has been there in other apps for a while, mm-hmm. but the way it's sort of baked into the OS is getting, you know, more discoverability for this feature yeah. and this ability. Um, you know, that was, I think one of the most powerful demos about the, that sort of made the case this can be your primary computing device mm-hmm. and it'll actually be better at doing some things that had sort of been promised for years by hybrids right. and, and all these other devices over time. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, the new hardware is really nice. I, I kind of had a look at it in the demo area, I put my, you know, current generation iPad pro next to it. And it, it feels like it's very much the same size as a device, but the screen is a little bit bigger, you know, it gives you that much more to work with and so on. Um, also did a run through of, um, you know, the new version of iOS and, and again, took a video of that, which I posted on Twitter, which you can see it's also on the Jackdaw Research YouTube page. Um, but, uh, you know, it really feels like there's a lot more capability there. And yet I feel like I really need to spend some time with it to see whether it's as user friendly and intuitive as they make it seem when they're running you through a quick demo. You know, do you remember how you, all the different gestures work? Because there are a number of different new gestures now. Uh, some gestures have changed. So swipe up from the bottom of the screen used to bring up Control Center and various other things. Uh, swipe up from the bottom of the screen now brings up the dock if you're in an app. Uh, in order to get the Control Center, you have to kind of swipe up again. Uh, and that then brings up this new view with spaces and the Control Center in it. Or you can double click on the Home button to bring that up as well. So there are some new gestures and, and things in the interface which are going to take some getting used to and going to be a change. Even for things that you used to be able to do are going to move and, and be accessible in new and different ways. And so there's going to be some disruption involved with this, which will be interesting. Right. Um, but, you know, it's it's in theory very capable. And I think the challenge is just does it feel overwhelming or does it still feel like it retains the kind of simplicity and focus that's always been a hallmark of iOS and the iPad in particular. And that's the that's the balance that Apple's going to have to strike here. And I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now. But, you know, that's the tricky part. And I don't know yet whether it's struck that balance quite right. And it's not going to be until I've actually had a chance to really try this stuff out that, I'll be able to really draw a conclusion about that. So I'm looking forward to downloading the developer beta and really trying it out for the next little while. But in theory, at least, it seems like, you know, they're, they're striking that balance pretty well. You know, this, what you just described is really insightful, but it, it was a problem. With, it's been a problem with Mac OS for years. They come up with new sort of, you know, widgets or control centers or, you know, whatever, all these different, all these different things. And you have to retrain yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> to do things yeah. differently unless there was one really compelling thing that solved a major problem in the way you use your computer. Mm-hmm. Most of it was just sort of refinements and workflow. Yeah. And, uh, 
and I agree it, it's a training thing but uh, you know it, it, that's what happens when you try to develop a more powerful platform a more flexible platform for all the different ways people work you're going to have a lot of those sort of workflow training problems as people figure out okay should I do this this way now there right. are going to be a bunch of people who never know to drag, drag and drop in the new iPad in mm -hmm. iOS 11 yeah um, and they'll just sort of muddle their way through. Right. Um, but then there are going to be other people for whom it's, it solves a problem that's bugged them for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the big question is, you know, how do people discover this stuff? Do, how do they not just discover yeah, it exactly. in a, a device they already have, but how do they discover that it's possible if they're considering buying one of these devices? How do they know now that, oh, this is something I can do? You know, will they drill deep enough on the Apple website to find that functionality and so on? So there's that. Um, that question there, I think. And, you know, the more sophisticated all of these platforms become, of course, the issue of discoverability becomes a deeper one. And I think the New York Times had a piece about this on the iPhone. I think it's actually less relevant on the iPhone because pretty much everything is, is reachable through some simple gestures. But and it, and it works because it's come incrementally over time. They don't tend to add a billion new things at once. They've kind of added one new gesture per year or whatever. And so it's not been that overwhelming. But I think in this context uh, where it's not as visually obvious uh, how it all works, I think it'll be an interesting challenge. Well, let's spend the last few minutes here talking about the sort of, I think it was one last thing rather than one more thing, but right. the, the HomePod. Um, which I'm not a huge fan of the name, frankly, but I'm sure it'll grow on me. But um, but the HomePod, which is their speaker, and I think the framing is in some ways the most interesting thing here. You know, if you think about uh, Amazon Echo, if you think about Google Home and how they've been described, it's very assistant-centric, and it's about voice centricity and about uh, that kind of thing. And, and sp speakers almost as an afterthought. And so it was fascinating to see this whole segment introduced about being the focus on music about reinventing home music and so on that was the focus and obviously that plays to apple's strengths it plays to their history you know with the ipod and a bunch of other stuff they've done over the years around audio um but you know siri wasn't mentioned until several minutes into this presentation this isn't a siri speaker as we've all been calling it at least that's not how they're framing it it is that but that's not the framing that apple wants us to think of and basically their kind of one-line summary was you can get smart speakers today that are smart but not great speakers or you can get great speakers that aren't smart here's a great speaker that's smart basically that's the framing as i see it but the 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 focus was music the focus you know for the first few minutes was all about the audio experience and they're really positioning this in between the kind of sonos market and the amazon echo and google home market and even i'd argue much more at the sonos end of that spectrum um and the great thing is you know sonos doesn't do smart speakers today um you know there really isn't anybody out there that does really good audio uh, that happens to be smart um you either get smart or you get good audio and so they're, they're kind of pitching for a segment of the market that really isn't addressed right now that does mean, as we kind of were talking about previously, I think that, you know, this is obviously a more premium product, $350. Obviously costs more than twice as much as, you know, Google Home, for example, about twice as much as a, an Amazon Echo. Um, but, you know, does a lot more. And, and in the Sonos category, would very much kind of fit in with the sort of pricing there for what we're talking about here. So, you know, on paper, at least, I think the framing makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, it is also a Siri speaker. It does also do a lot of this other stuff. And there are ties to the rest of the Apple ecosystem, like iMessage and so on. One question that wasn't addressed on stage is whose iMessage account does it use? How do you set this yeah. thing up? And, you know, the same thing we've talked about with regard to the other devices, which Google has uh, recently fixed, which is, you know, which user... Um, are you talking to and how do you know which user you're talking to and I suspect given they didn't say anything about it today 
but for now at least it's a single user device which means it's somewhat limited but over time you know apple's in a good position to do multi-user support and so you know that may come later or maybe it will be announced when they they flesh it out more in the fall but anyway very interesting for me but aaron what was your thinking about it all yeah i it was it, it was a value proposition for these devices that felt like apple right the idea that it's sort of like hey here's a premium in-home speaker system that's smart right. and can do all these things but is primarily about music um <clears throat> the price point didn't surprise me in fact i was watching this with my boys and i called it i nailed it 349 <laughs> they all they were all impressed by that because <laughs> you got to impress your kids now now and again when you can yep. but uh but it was um I think the thing that's interesting to me about this is there's no big, huge innovation that I see. I mean, I think bringing quality to this market isn't is a, to this space isn't this product space is an interesting mm -hmm. idea. But but it's not like Apple sort of came in and because they've done this before with with previous devices. I mean, the iPad sort of said, "No, nah, this is really what tablets should be." Right, mm -hmm. and and there was a lot of innovation to it. Um, obviously, the iPhone was world changing. Mm -hmm. As far as smartphones were concerned, this one doesn't quite feel like that big of a game changer. Um, you know, when we were thinking about, uh, you know, when we were talking about this idea of this thing showing up, and I said, you know, I, it's not clear to me how the value proposition is that much better than my iPhone plugged into a speaker dock. Mm -hmm. We're still in that same spot. and. Yeah. And so I, I will say, I think on the software side, there's a lot of stuff that I suspect they're still figuring out yeah. before this thing actually ships in December. And so it'll be interesting mm -hmm. to see more about this. I think, for example, you're going to see a fall event where they where they fill in a lot of details right. about this device. Um, but the nice thing, right, about them announcing it at WWDC is, A, they avoid the, the leaks problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And B... They just basically told a whole bunch of people they hit the pause button on purchasing, right? Um, who people who, you know, were thinking about an Echo or a Google mm -hmm. Home, and now all of a sudden are thinking, oh, you know, it's more expensive, but maybe I'll end up getting one of these um, Home Pods instead. Right, right, yeah. No, I think you're right there, and I think um, I mean one of the things that they didn't mention that I would have loved to see is is FaceTime audio. Um, you yeah. know, like we, there's so many households that don't have a home phone anymore. And it would be so nice if we were, you know, if my wife and I are out in the evening and one of our, you know, our kids are getting old enough that we can leave them home by themselves. You know, I'd love to be able to call home basically to call that device that's in some prominent location where the kids are probably nearby and say, Hey kids, how's it going? You know, or have them be able to call me through it. For example, you know, that seems like an obvious value proposition. It's something you're obviously going to be able to do with the Amazon echo here pretty soon. Uh, with video calling too obviously with a show but even with the other echoes you, you can now do audio calling through those and for amazon the challenge is not everybody has a, an amazon endpoint yet um but you know in the apple ecosystem a lot of households are sort of iphone only you know the, those devices are pretty well out there um so that would have been nice to have i think and maybe that'll come i mean you've got all the necessary components i don't see why it couldn't come there eventually but um that'll be an interesting one um but yeah I, the, the I user could... support I could totally see the phone calling thing showing up in the fall event, you know, where they say, hey, look at all these cool things you're going to be able to do with this. Because right. um, I think it's I think we're going to see it on stage again before December. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, I think September it'll certainly get fleshed out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, when you, you're talking about the FaceTime calling, there's also just plain right outbound calling through your iPhone. 
mm-hmm. I mean, you can do that with your Mac now through a Bluetooth pairing, and it's surprising. Right. You know, I don't, I don't see why this thing can't also just make speakerphone calls for you from, you yeah. know, while you're in your kitchen cooking and you need to call somebody, and it just, mm-hmm. it just hooks into your iPhone to make that phone call. Yeah, this all seems like really obvious, low-hanging fruit, and I just have to mm-hmm. think that, you know, Apple just. I don't want to say they rushed to get this announced because it didn't feel rushed at all. It felt actually mm. like a really honed presentation with a lot of Absolutely. clear focus. Yeah. And it's a well-designed product. But I really do think there's a lot more software stuff that's getting baked into this that they weren't mm. ready to talk about yet because they're yeah. planning on making a bigger deal of it in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Agreed. Yeah, no, I think it'll be fascinating. I think, you know, I've kind of maintained along this isn't going to suddenly take over the home speaker market and the the smart speaker market that Amazon Echo and Google Home are part of. You know, those devices are cheaper. They'll probably still sell in large numbers, but this is going to sell in decent numbers, you know, and coming out in December means it's going to be a Christmas present for people in the countries where it's available. And then all through next year, it's going to build, assuming it gets well-reviewed. And that's the one thing we don't know is, you know, we didn't get a real demo on stage because you can't really demo something like this in a hall like that. So we got conceptual stuff, but we didn't get an actual demo. And the units that were in the hands-on area were just dumb units. You know, they weren't actually interacting in any way. So there's a lot of detail that we still don't know about this in terms of how it will actually perform, you know, how well does Siri perform on this thing? Is it frustrating or is it useful? Um, you know, on paper, again, it should be really good. Um, but, you know, we have to see how it actually performs, how well this sort of ambient music stuff works. Um, and, you know, we won't know for another six months. But, you know, it's at least on paper, looks like a really interesting entry. And as you say, job done in terms of getting the device out there so the leaks aren't nearly as interesting. And then also, you know, making people think twice before buying into a different ecosystem between now and the end of the year. Yeah, well, my biggest concern for the device, quite honestly, is their ability to keep up with demand come Christmas. Because mm-hmm. um, who knows how many of these they're going to be able to produce relative to demand. And when you look at what happened, what's happened to AirPods, I mean, they're yeah. still six weeks out. Right. And so I think that's where Apple is most likely to fall down. I think the Siri mm-hmm. stuff and all that other things, you know, people will put up with it if it's not perfect because right. they get yeah. that already with their iPhone. But I think not being able to buy one is where Apple, I think, faces the biggest risk of sort of blowing the rollout of this. Yeah, and that's where the Bloomberg report from last week was interesting because it talked about it going to manufacturing, which is a bit surprising given it didn't seem all that fully baked. You know, they didn't have live units in the demo area and so on, so it would be a bit surprising if it really is. But, of course, you can manufacture the hardware and still tune the software afterwards, I guess. Yeah, um, and going and to maybe manufacturing just tooling up. a lot of things. Yeah, they could like mean it, they're just tooling up or whatever yeah. rather than actually building in, in mass numbers or anything like that. Um, so maybe that's what that's about. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that they've learned something. They are using the same vendor, reportedly, in Ventec for uh, the HomePod as they are for the AirPods. Um, so take that for what you want. But uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the good news is here, you know, this is more than twice as expensive. It's not a personal device. It's a home-level device. So at least intuitively, you'd expect them to sell far fewer of them. And they are restricting it to a few countries, which is probably partly Siri-based you know, English language countries only for now, which probably helps them to tune things a little bit, but probably also helps to mitigate the demand a little bit while they kind of ramp up supply. So yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're learning something there. But uh, but yeah, I, I'm fascinated by it. I'm, I'm very curious to try it out um, when it comes out and see how it does. All right, well, that kind of wraps up the actual uh, keynote and we kind of talked through it pretty much in chronological order at this point, covered all the major bases. Um, kind of talked at the beginning about you know, it's more hardware centric than it's been for a while. It's about 40 minutes on hardware, whereas we haven't had any hardware for the last three years. Uh, first real mentions of VR and AR in an Apple keynote at all. So that was new and different. Uh, some dedicated time on AI and machine learning as well, which was different. 
Um, you know, iOS got about the same total time. It's been pretty consistently about sort of 55 minutes to an hour. Uh, Mac OS just keeps shrinking and shrinking in terms of stage time. TV OS that made its first appearance last year disappeared this year, basically one minute. Um, Watch OS got much shorter time this year. Um, you know, a lot of stuff being moved around, but a heck of a lot of ground covered. And, and as we sort of said up front, a lot of it is just hitting the highlights with a lot of detail uh, to come out in press releases and as people actually try this stuff and in the other sessions over the next few days. So, you know, really interesting set of announcements. So, and, you know, it feels like, I don't know, overall feels like the major themes, including sort of Siri was a theme, although it was kind of scattered throughout, you know, Siri's getting better and it's, it's again in yet more places and doing more things. Uh, you know, productivity and the pro user was a big theme for me. You know, AR was a really interesting theme, you know, and the distinction that I mentioned between AR and VR. Uh, machine learning and opening that up to developers, I think, is a really interesting step. Um, so lots of interesting stuff for, for me. Aaron, any kind of last wrap-up thoughts from you? No, I just feel like it's going to take me a week to wrap my head around everything, just because there was so much detail. And it'll be interesting to watch you know the details trickle out from the developer sessions because there are always interesting things that happen mm -hmm. that never made the stage or things that were unclear that are going to be clarified right. um i think we got to keep our eyes on the imac pro question and whether mm -hmm. or not this is the replacement for yeah. the mac pro so, yeah but uh yeah i there's there's still a lot to kind of get a grip on and i'm excited for the public betas to come out because i'll mm. be definitely going that direction with, for both my mac and my ios stuff yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm going to be I'm going to be getting home late tonight. So I'll be over the next couple of days. I'll be loading up uh, iOS 11 on a, an iPad Pro for sure, um, and maybe dabbling with some of the other stuff as well. But uh, yeah, I'm very interested to, to try a lot of the stuff out, especially the iPad Pro, you know, productivity stuff. Well, thanks guys for listening. Um, it's a longer episode than we usually do these days for this question of the week, but um, this is, as I said, tradition for us to do kind of a deep dive around WWDC. So hopefully it was interesting, useful for you. Um, we usually try to get these out same day with these major events because we figure that's when it's the most interesting. Um, but we should have a, a news roundup episode sometime later in the week um, covering whatever other tech news there may be this week um, in a week that tends to be rather dominated by Apple news but uh, thanks for listening uh, we'll have some uh, links in the show notes I did a, a comment for press earlier that kind of summarized my views on this so we'll link to that we'll probably also link to Apple's press release page where a lot of the details that we talked about that weren't mentioned on stage are listed in some of those press releases so thanks again and we'll be talking to you again later in the week bye bye